Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. So today, I would like to speak on the subject of answering the call to advocacy. Answering the call to advocacy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, for it truly is good news. And Lord, we can't even spell gospel without the word go. And we thank you for this institution's commitment to go with the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And we thank you, Lord, that as they go, they are not bringing you to the lost, to the last, or to the least. Because, Lord, truly, you are there. They are bringing hope. They are bringing the gospel. And I thank you for what is happening with this brother in Michigan and what is happening through this school around the country and even the planet. Would you continue to bless them to be a blessing? May this message, Lord, uh, fall in line with how your spirit is working here. May I stay in step with him. Thank you for your word. It will not return void. Bless your people today. Open up our eyes where we may be blinded. Open up our ears where we may be a little deaf. And soften our hearts where we may be a little hard. And when it's all said and done, would you produce fruit? Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. You're speaking now. You're using a broken preacher. And Lord, I pray that you get the glory, for it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. It is my understanding that in the early 1900s of this country, that in order for a patient to leave a mental institution, he or she would have to pass a very simple test. And what the caretakers would do is that they would take the patient into a bathroom. They would turn the water on and put the stopper in the sink. And they would allow the water to overflow onto the floor. And as the water kept running, the spill kept spilling. And the caretakers would give the patient a mop and they would say to this person who was hoping that it was their time to leave the institution, they would say to that person, mop up this spill. We'll give you 30 minutes to mop up this spill. And when we come back, we'll determine the status of your exodus. So in 30 minutes, the caretakers would come back. And if they came back into that bathroom and that patient was still mopping up water, without having turned the water off, then that will tell the caretaker that this person is not ready to go back out into society because they did not display uh, the reasoning uh, in order to not only mop up the problem, but stop the problem at its root. And when I was trained in ministry, I was trained a lot like that. I was trained to mop up spills Oh, I was good at mopping up spills, but I wasn't trained 
to see the causal problems that caused the spill in the first place. I wasn't trained to go upstream and find out why kids are being pushed into the river as opposed to just being downstream, pulling them out of the river. And so I believe that there is a need for both, that we need to mop up spills, but we also need to learn how to turn off the water. We need to know how to pull people out of a river, but we also need to know why they're being pushed in the river in the first place and to even stop that. And when we think about ministry, God has called us to good works. We're not saved by works, but we're called to good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are Christ's workmanship, created in him to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. So as we do good works, people will see those works and they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so I was trained to, to do good works, but I wasn't taught about the work of advocacy. Advocacy is also a work of the kingdom. Adv advocacy is also an expression of the gospel because we know the gospel is not only John 3.16, but the gospel is also Luke 4.18. The gospel deals with our spiritual connection to God because without Christ being our mediator and the one who sacrificed himself as the only mediator between God and men, his blood was the propitiation for our sins to make us right with God the Father. But the gospel also has horizontal ramifications as well. How I relate to my neighbor, especially those who may be bound, those who may be oppressed, those who may be victims of an unjust and unrighteous system. And when Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit in his hometown of Nazareth, he went out preaching and he said, the Spirit of God is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's anointed me to set the captives free. He has anointed me to give sight to the blind. So the gospel has physical and social ramifications as much as it has spiritual and eternal ramifications. But there was this overemphasis when I was where you were sitting many, many years ago. There was an overemphasis on the spiritual and not enough on the practical and the systemic. And God calls us to both. He calls us to the work of advocacy. Advocacy is when someone decides to stand up, speak up, give up, and even think up. Oh, I'm a preacher, so I got to break it down for you. If you're going to be an advocate, you need to know how to stand up. And when you stand up, you're standing up and you're using the access you have to the powerful to petition on behalf of the powerless that they might be able to get some power. That's what an advocate does. An advocate will stand up and speak to the powers that be on behalf of those who lack power. But not only will we stand up, we will speak up and we will speak up for the voiceless. We will speak up for people who don't have a chance to sit at the table that we can often take for granted. So when we are there, the voice of the marginalized is there as well, coming through us because we're speaking up on their behalf. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that uh, the righteous care about justice for the poor. And as God's people, we are to speak up for those whose voice is usually not heard. But not only are we to stand up and speak up, but we're also to give up. An advocate is someone who will give up some time, who will give up some energy, who will give up money, who will even give up uh, recognition, 
who will give up comfort and ease in order to help someone else. This person will give up his or her life if necessary to be an advocate. But not only must an advocate stand up and speak up and give up, but an advocate will then think up. Think up strategies that not only solve the problem, but also deal with the causal root or the systemic problem that created the situation in the first place. So an advocate will think up strategies, many times fighting law with law, fighting legislation with legislation. And God has called his people into these arenas. You know, Nehemiah was an advocate for his people. When he had that good government job and he worked for the king as a cupbearer, he could have just stayed there and enjoyed uh, the plushness of that opportunity. But no, he was burdened for his people back home. And he used his access to authority to help those who needed help, to help those who needed provision. He stood in the gap as an advocate. Uh, Abigail was an advocate. Uh, because when David was going to kill Nabal, he was also going to wipe out the whole village, but she stood in the gap, and she spoke on behalf of her people that David would have mercy. And David did, and God later killed Nabal the fool. Then David hooked up with Abigail, and that's a whole other sermon. But anyway, we also know that Joseph was an advocate for the Jews. He used his governmental authority that God gave him as the number two in command to not only take care of his own family, but to take care of the Jewish people. He advocated for them. And he said to his brothers, what you meant for evil in terms of selling me into slavery, God meant for good. And he brought me here, Genesis 50, 20, for the saving of many lives. And we know that in ministry, that when we talk about saving lives, we know God is the ultimate savior. He works through us to preach the salvific message of Jesus Christ but he will use us in the saving of souls, but he will also use us in the saving of lives. Because if people can't eat, it's hard for them to hear the gospel when their stomach is growling. If people are cold, it's hard for them to understand the gospel when they're shivering. If someone is thirsty, it's hard for them to really understand that Christ is the living water. So when we go, we should have this even-handed approach of not only ministering where souls can be saved, but we also care about the life as well. I grew up being taught the plantation gospel. The plantation gospel is you give the gospel to the slave so that his or her soul can be free, but you do nothing to change the conditions that the slave is in. And I was taught, once again, an overemphasis on pray this prayer of salvation. And I would go into cities all across this country, praying, leading people to pray the prayer of salvation but I didn't stick around long enough to even care about the things that they were challenged with as far as unemployment. I didn't stick around long enough to, to try to even come up with solutions concerning the challenges with their educational system. I, I just gave them the gospel, and that was good enough to get them to heaven, but I do believe that Christ came to give us not only eternal life, but abundant life here until we get to heaven, and we know it's relative in each context. But God has saved us holistically, mind, body, and soul, and he wants us to preach the gospel holistically. And we know when it comes to advocacy, Barnabas was an advocate, man. Everybody was afraid of Paul. 
Paul got converted, the church didn't believe it. But it was Barnabas who brought Paul to the table and said, you can trust him because I hope that you trust me. He put his reputation on the line to help a man who had had a severe conversion out of darkness and into the marvelous light. What would have happened if Barnabas had just stayed comfortable and, and just did his own thing and let Paul just kind of meander along and figure it out? we might not have 13 books of the Bible. The, the gospel may not have spread through the then known world as it did, but it took Barnabas, an advocate. Then Paul turned around and advocated for a slave named Onesimus to its, his owner, Philemon. And, and Paul stood in the gap and said, I want you to receive this runaway slave back, not as a slave, but I want you to receive this man now as your brother. That's advocacy, and that's what God calls us to whether on the personal level, on an institutional level, or a legal level, we all should be involved in the work of advocacy. But above all, Jesus is the greatest advocate there ever was or will be. Matter of fact, 1 John 2, 1 calls him the advocate. He's our defense lawyer. He goes to God the Father on our behalf. In the book of Job, Job was, he was struggling. He said, I wish somebody could lay their hand on God and lay their hand on me. He was crying out for his redeemer. He was crying out for Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, who could lay his hand on God because he was and is God, who could also lay his hand on man because he became man. Jesus advocated for the, us who needed somebody to stand up for us, somebody to speak up for us, somebody to give up for us. And we thank God that Jesus is our advocate and he calls us to go out and be like these men but I also need to tell you with my time remaining there's a mighty lady in scripture named Esther who was an advocate for her people and so go with me into a familiar story that may come across this morning with an unfamiliar twist so I pray that the Spirit of God will minister to you as he has with me from this story and how advocacy leaps off the pages. We see in verse 1 of Esther chapter 4, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So, we see Mordecai's mourning. Why is he mourning? Well, if we were to take the time, we could look into the setting of Esther. And just to set it up briefly, we know that the Jews had gone into Babylonian captivity because of their disobedience. But as Jeremiah prophesied, that captivity would only last 70 years. And so the Babylonians were defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. And when the Medo-Persian Empire came into power, God moved on the heart of the king to allow the Jews to go back home to Jerusalem. There were three deportations back to Jerusalem, one under Zerubbabel, another under Ezra, and the third under Nehemiah. Well, one group decided to stay in Persia, and that is this uh, a group of people we see in the book of Esther. They did not go back when they had an opportunity to return home. So as they are there, they are becoming meshed into the society. They are becoming one with the culture, yet remaining there, uh, uh, attaining their distinctiveness as God's people. Uh, but there came a time when Mordecai, who was a Jewish man, who may have had a government job because he found himself in the gate when we read the narrative. And while he's there, there's a man named Haman who comes. 
who is the king's number two man, and everyone is bowing down to Haman except for Mordecai. This causes Haman to be livid, and he not only makes a plan to kill Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people, being the Jews. And so he goes to the king because he has access. He devises a plan so that a decree can go out that within 11 months, all of the Jewish people, children, women, and men would be killed and they could not defend themselves. And so when this decree went forth, when the Jews heard it, when Mordecai heard it, he began to grieve and to lament. How would you feel if you heard a decree from Washington that people who are six feet and over will be killed in six months. You would walk around lamenting, or if they said, uh, we're gonna kill all brunettes in six months, you'd find your way to the beauty shop and you know, color your hair. You, you would do whatever you could, but when people hear that there are laws about immigration, that are affecting children who came through the DREAM Act and, and they're not sure what's going to happen with their future and they're unsettled. Uh, uh, this is that a hundred times over because they're being told you're going to be annihilated and what you have just read is systemic oppression. What you just read is state-sanctioned genocide. And genocide is when one group of people is killed by another group of people because of their ethnicity or because of their religion. One group of people with the power decides to take out another group of people without power. It's called genocide. And here it was sanctioned by the government. This was demonic at its core because not only the killing of God's people, people made in his image, all of us are image bearers, but these were the Hebrews the people that God gave a covenant uh, with Abraham to bless every family on the earth, and those who bless Abraham will be blessed, and those who curse Abraham will be cursed. This is originating from Satan to kill God's people because in Satan's strategy, he's trying to kill off the Messiah and those who are related to him, but God has a plan. So Mordecai is mourning. So you can't fault him if he puts on a Hebrew Lives Matter shirt. You can't fault him because in this moment, Hebrew lives don't matter to the system. And so he's mourning and he's grieving. But then we see Esther's ignorance in verses four and five. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her and the queen was deeply distressed then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So two things. She sees that or hears that her cousin Mordecai is grieving. He has taken off his normal clothes and he's put on mourner's clothes. She says, let me try to solve this problem by sending him some clothes. Again, as God's people, we should clothe the naked. We should visit those in prison and uh, we should also house those who are strangers. We should be about good works, but good works without advocacy sometimes is meaningless because in this moment, Mordecai didn't need clothes 
He needed an advocate. And so it's not clothes that he needed. But as we dig a little deeper into the text, the Bible says she needed to learn what and why this was. Why was her cousin grieving like this? So this means that Esther was not in tune with the times. Uh, uh, although the decree to kill the Jews was made in the same palace in which she lives, right down the hall, she was so enveloped in privilege that she had no idea how the law that her husband made affected a whole group of people. And so she was oblivious to what was happening because the things that don't affect us many times don't move us. That's somebody else's problem. I don't have time to even read that, look at that or go there. Oh, you know, hey. And so Esther, she didn't know what was going on. And a lot of us don't know what's going on. No wonder Marvin Gaye wrote the song, What's Going On? <laughs> and let me tell you what's going on. Picket signs and picket lines don't punish me with police brutality. But come on, talk to me so you can see what's going on. He wrote that because a lot of the world, they don't know what's going on. As we're in our ivory towers of comfort and ease, and God has blessed us with privilege. God has blessed us with means, but he's blessed us to be a blessing. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion, the prophet said. Wake up. Esther needed to wake up. And so she was ignorant. And so Mordecai had a response to her in verse 6 through 9, where he tells her what's going on. Verse 7, Mordecai told him that of all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. You know, all you need in order to wipe out people, you need an evil man, you need a weak king, and you need the love of money because it's the root of all kinds of evil. It will not only make you kill people, it will make you enslave people. That's what money will do. He says in verse eight, he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given to Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. Oh yeah, Mordecai's response was, let me tell you, what's going on because when oppressed people start talking those of us from advantage should start listening we should validate their experience even if their experience is not our experience but many times rather than listening to the oppressed and the marginalized we lecture them Mordecai said, you need to listen to this. You need to read this decree, and you need to understand what is going on. Where in our lives do we hear the cries of oppressed people? Are our lives proximate to hurting people, or do we only hang out with people who look like us, who go to church like us, who uh, vote like us, who listen to the same kind of music that we do? Because if we only hang out with people who are like that, who are like us, will then start thinking that God is like us and only God is for us. But one of the reasons we do global missions is we get to see how big God is and he blows up our little worldview to see that he's everywhere and he loves all people, not just us. And so Mordecai, he, he gives her this response and he says, honey, it's time 
for you to answer the call to advocacy. It's time for you to use that privilege that God has given you in that palace to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. It's time for you to stand up and it may even be time for you to give up certain rights and privileges so that somebody else can have some rights and privileges. It's time. And when it comes to being an advocate, whether you want to advocate uh, uh, children who are, are struggling with crippling illiteracy, you want to be an advocate for children, because by the time kids reach the third grade, based on test scores, big, big businesses know how many prisons to build based on test scores. So not only must I be involved in mentoring and helping a kid learn his or her math and English, I also need to deal with the systemic roots of why that kid is in that tough place to begin with, with that poor school and in that poor neighborhood and mom working two and three jobs and doesn't have time to read to the child. I not only want to deal with it by mopping up the spill, but help me go downstream and try to turn off what's wrong and help create something that's right advocacy and he said it's time for you Esther you don't have to go out looking for you ta-da it found you and people are hurting what are you going to do in this moment that God is giving to you well Esther did what a lot of us do she came up with excuses in verses 10 through 12 uh, she said um I can't do anything about this problem because the king hasn't called me into his presence so I know you want me to advocate for the people, but there's this law around here. Oh, now you want to talk about laws. Uh, you didn't want to talk about laws that killed innocent people, but now you're talking about a law that will have you killed if you go in before your king unannounced. And if he doesn't extend that scepter of grace, that means you die. Oh, oh so now you want to talk about laws. And so she gives her cousin excuses and we have excuses well I, I, I don't know about if I can go into that neighborhood I don't know if I can go to that people group I just I, you know I didn't grow up that way I, I just don't understand I feel awkward I, I don't know what I can do wait a minute I thought you could do all things through Jesus who gives you the strength I thought that faithful is he who calls you who will also do it when God called Moses Moses said Lord who am I to go and advocate for the Jews and talk to Pharaoh God said to Moses, it's not about who you are, it's about who I am. Stop focusing on yourself and focus on me. I'll work through you if you're willing to work with me. And we can do great things together, but you got to go. You got to go. You got to go. And so he challenges her. <laughs> she comes up with excuses. But I love Mordecai because Mordecai did not let her off the hook. Because in verses 13 through 14, he says to her, uh, don't think you're going to escape by being in the king's palace. I told you not to tell them you were Jewish, which meant that there were no physical distinctions outstanding anyway between Jews and Persians. So Esther, you could blend in to the system, but at some point, they're going to find out that you're Jewish and the law that would kill us is going to kill you. You won't escape. And even though the name of God is not found in the book of Esther, his fingerprints are everywhere. You see his providential hand everywhere. And Mordecai said, if you don't rise up right now and be an advocate, relief will come from somewhere else. But who knows? Perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And God has led you to this school for such a time as this 
to be trained, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to build relationships that will go forth from this place and make a difference for his sake for such a time as this? Will you answer the call to be an advocate? So Esther's courage rose up because her cousin Morty checked her and she responded to being checked. And by the way, Mordecai wasn't asking her to do something he didn't do. He was also an advocate. Man, what are you talking about? There was this plot to kill the king. Mordecai heard about the plot and rather than being quiet, he told Esther to tell the king, they're trying to kill you here, king. And so they examined it and, and they looked at it and he found out it was true. There was an assassination plot on King Ahasuerus. And Mordecai's name was written into a book and nothing was ever done about it to award him. But God's timing would come a little bit later in chapter 5 on that. And so Mordecai advocated for a Persian man. Mordecai the Jew advocated for someone outside of his ethnicity. Why? Because if you are an advocate, you're going to advocate for all of God's people and not just your own people. The burden may start with your own people, but it can't stay there. You are, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we are called to be God's messengers and his uh, uh, arm of justice in the earth. So Mordecai was telling Esther to do what he had done. So Esther got her courage in verses 15 through 16, and she said, uh, go gather all the Jews, so a president Shushan, and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There we go, girl. There we go. You're willing to lay it on the line. You're willing to be an advocate where you're going to speak up. You're going to stand up. You're willing to give up your life for somebody else. And isn't that when we find life is what Jesus said. When we try to save our lives, we lose it. But when I put my life on the line for others, that's when I find life because that's when I'm truly imitating Jesus Christ. And so she says, y'all fast for me. And I like what's going to come out of this fast. A strategy is going to come out of this fast whereby she's going to be able to be wise as a serpent yet harmless as a dove. And she uses her access to the king and her privilege as the queen to stand in the gap for her people. And she comes up with the plan. And if you don't know the plan, I invite you to read the rest of the book. It is amazing. And the people are saved through another decree or legislation that came forth. And so that's how the Jewish people were saved. And so she had courage to stand up. What will make you stand up? What cause will, will move your life out of normalcy into that wild or great adventure that Stephen Curtis Chapman many years sang about? What will move you? Is it human trafficking? Is it racial profiling? Is it abortion? What is it that will move you past and beyond good works and they are necessary? But some of us will have access to be an advocate in places of power. What will move you? But I'm so thankful for Esther because we see in her that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the people that he calls. 
What we see in Esther is that the greatest ability is availability. Here I am, Lord, use me. And what I see in Esther is once she was afraid, but now she's courageous. And a leader is not someone who doesn't have fear. A leader is someone who won't let fear stop him or her from doing what is necessary and courageous. You know, I'm going forward. My knees may be knocking, but I'm going forward in Jesus' name. And watch my help come and give me strength. That's what happened to Esther. We saw that she was an advocate who chose to stand up, speak up, give up, and even think up a great strategy. Oh, when I was growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, we had to be street all-stars. You had to be able to play three sports on the street basketball, baseball, and football. And when it came to basketball, I was naturally right-handed. I would drive to the right. I would shoot with the right. I would dribble behind my back with my right hand. I would even learn how to finger roll with my right hand like George Gervin. Oh, I went back too far for some of y'all. George Gervin mastered the finger roll. You could finger roll from the free throw line. Oh, I learned how to use my right hand good. But I realized that if I was really going to be a da uh, dangerous on the court, I had to develop my left hand. Because if I just kept my right hand, then the defender would know which way I'm going and could stop me and I would not be as effective. So I had to learn how to dribble with my left hand. I had to learn how to shoot with my left hand. I had to learn how to go behind my back with my left hand. And yes, I had to learn how to finger roll with my left hand. And once I had a right hand and a left hand, brother was dangerous on the court. Oh, I just stopped by here today to tell you that I wasn't trained in ministry to have a left hand. I was only trained with my right hand. And I thank God for my training, but God is showing me now that there's more than having a right hand. You've got to develop the left hand of advocacy. But I have to warn you that as you develop your left hand, those on the right will call your names. When you develop the left hand of advocacy, they'll say that you're liberal. When you develop the left hand of advocacy, they'll say that you're a Marxist. When you develop the left hand of advocacy, advocacy they'll say you got away from the gospel and they'll start calling your names but you just tell them if you're gonna call me anything call me a child of God I don't really care what you call me because God has called me to be an ambidextrous ambassador using my right hand and my left hand Paul said that in 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 7 he said we have weapons of God in our right hand and in our left hand oh southeastern I just stopped by here today to encourage you you your right hand to do good works but develop your left hands to do advocacy and watch God tear down strongholds in his name and see the captives set free hallelujah amen yeah let me pray for us God we thank you for what you're doing in the earth thank you for how your spirit is moving in the body of Christ where we are confessing and repenting of things many times we've never seen before or admitted to. You're doing a new thing, you're doing a new work. You're answering the prayers of our ancestors to bring healing into the church, to bring unity into the church so that there may be healing in the country. Lord, continue to inject the body of Christ 
the central nervous system of this country with power from on high, whereby we are more concerned with being a witness than with our whiteness, where we are more concerned with being a believer on the front lines than about our blackness and our whiteness and our blackness is important. It's just secondary to who we are in Christ. Teach us, Lord, to love people where they are. Teach us, Lord God, to have eyes of vision for them that we can see where they can be, not only with the help of the Lord, but with our help. Use us, transform us, change us. Thank you again for this institution. Bless them exceedingly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.